Uh, thank you, Bart. Uh, I, again, I wanted to reiterate what I said last week in case you weren't here. Uh, we are very blessed. I don't, I don't really know what God is doing, but we've been praying as a church from the very beginning that we would be uh, able to plant churches in our city. And obviously, uh, one of the things we need if we're going to plant churches in our city is men who want to go out as church planters. And so as we've prayed about that, uh, the Lord has begun to answer those prayers and send us young guys uh, like Josh, who's working with our uh, youth, and Bart, who is his roommate, who in Bart's story really is, he came down for a class project to interview me about church planting, and we went to scores and had breakfast in about three weeks. I don't know when it was, but soon after that, he began to contemplate, you know, what if I was to just um, move my life down to Winter Haven and be with those people uh, and learn about church planting uh, so that they can send me out one day? And so he's here uh, to be trained uh, towards church planting. And so we're going to have those guys up here on the stage uh, this summer some, doing some, uh, just getting them kind of acquainted with some of the tasks of ministry. And like I said last week, it's going to be our job as a congregation, to turn these young guys into great pastors and great preachers. So that, that's the task before us, just notes out there, okay? Uh, we, uh, 18 months ago, we started a series on the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we finish it. Hallelujah. Um, now we're going to come to one last passage here in, in, in Matthew's Gospel this morning, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Uh, And so you can read along with me if you'd like to in your Bible. It'll also be on the screen behind me. It's printed for you in the worship folder as well. But just, uh, it's a very stark uh, uh, passage about what the theme that we've been covering over the last few weeks about the second coming of Christ and the judgment that awaits us uh, once we um, no longer live in this life. And so let's read together if you would, and then we're going to just work our way through it, okay? Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? Or in prison and did not minister to you, then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. Uh, four things, just just in, by way of introduction, four little just brief bullet points <clears throat> about how I think this passage fits into the larger 
story or the larger teaching of what we've been seeing in these four weeks that we've been looking about the second coming in in Matthew's gospel and verses, I mean, excuse me, chapters 24 and 25, okay? Four points, four things really quick, just by way of introduction. The first is this, that what we learn here yet again is that Jesus is coming again, this time in his glory, with all the angels attending him, to sit on his glorious throne and to settle accounts with us. He is coming to bring us into judgment. And the righteous, those who are obedient, will go away, we see there in verse 34, into eternal life. They will inherit the kingdom, Jesus says, prepared for them by the Father from before the foundation of the world. And that, that wording there means that they will go into an experience that will be a place where the deepest desires of our hearts for love and intimacy and a sense of purpose are fulfilled. Into the eternal kingdom prepared for us. But on the other hand, those who are disobedient will go away into eternal punishment. Verse 41, they will be cursed and cast out into the fire of God's wrath forever. And those are the two options. Eternal life or eternal punishment, heaven or hell. He's coming again to settle accounts and bring us to judgment. But then the second thing, and we've been saying this for a number of weeks, is if that's true, then there's just a call to be ready. Be ready then. And I was reminded this week in the death of a friend and then the death of Rick Lear's father, uh, two deaths de- dealing with this week that were really sad, uh, but reminded uh, with my friend of how easily it is to live in the denial of the reality of death. And the problem, the problem in this case with denying the reality of, of an impending death is that it robs you of the chance of getting ready. You, you deny, 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 and the result is I don't do any, I don't spend any time getting ready. But Jesus' words here don't allow for denial. He's coming again. And whether you're still alive when he comes or whether death overtakes you before he comes, the the result will be inevitable. You will stand before him in judgment. And so pastorally, I just have to say, don't live in denial of that reality. Above all else you do in this life, be ready for that day. Aim your life at that day. Make every decision in light of that day. Okay? So Jesus is coming again to settle accounts. And to bring us to judgment, we should be ready. A third point, the basis of that judgment on that day will be our works. We'll be judged according to our works. You see that? I mean, even here, the dividing line will be whether we have been faithful with the gifts and talents and resources that God has given to us, whether we've used those things selfishly for our own agenda and our own purpose, or used them to accomplish his mission in the world. And that's what the parable of the talents taught last week. And it's here again. But remember, last week, remember, before you panic... Uh, and there are elders here from my mother church who could bring me up on charges and get me in trouble before we all panic. Remember what I said, does that mean that we're saved by our works? No, of course not. But wait a minute. Yes. What? Right? No, we're not saved by good works. The Apostle Paul's clear. No one's justified by works, but by faith. And that just means that the gavel, remember that word justification is the verdict of God coming down upon our lives and the verdict comes, uh, not guilty, you know, well done because, not because I've, I've achieved and I've earned and I've won it for myself, but because Jesus' good works are credited to me as righteousness as I believe into him. So no, of course not. We're not, you know, our eternal destiny is not a matter of works, but wait a minute. Yeah, it is. 
Because though we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Remember, this is what we were kind of working through last week. Faith is not a decision, we said. It's a grace. And the grace of God that works faith into your life will also energize your life toward good works. You can't have one without the other. So the way you know you have true faith is that there are good works, what the Bible calls fruit. But they're not works that you've produced. They are the product of the gospel's power working in and through your life. And the way Jesus really works out this principle, as confusing as it may sound, in this passage is through the element of of surprise or irony. And that's the fourth point, that the day of judgment will be full of surprise. Look here. Both those who go to eternal life and those who go to eternal judgment are surprised. So look at the wicked there in verse 44. Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They're confused. They're they're surprised at what he said. There's a similar scene in Matthew 7 where those who are standing before Jesus in judgment say, Did we not, he says, depart from me. Did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works? You know, in other words, they had a pretty impressive spiritual resume and they're there. And yet they're told, I never knew you, depart from me. And Jesus' teaching there and here is that there are going to be lots of very good, moral, religious people who are in for a horrible surprise on the day of judgment. But the righteous are surprised too. Look what they say here in verses 37 through 39. Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you? I mean, when did we see you in prison and visit you? In other words, on the day of judgment, the righteous are in for a surprise, they'll be surprised at how much good they did that they were really unaware of. I mean, one commentator put it this way. He said, grace works in the life of a true Christian in such a subterranean and yet pervasive way that there is what he called an unconscious obedience. In other words, they don't, you know, true Christians, people who have genuine faith, don't have to try to be obedient, it's just there. It just spills out, right? It's what every father tells their son, we're playing a baseball tournament at um Sertoma park this weekend and the fences are about 25 feet shorter than the fences at our park and so every kid on our baseball team has got it in their head that they're going to jack home runs over the fence right and if you're a baseball coach what do you tell a kid if you try to hit a home run what's going to happen you're not going to hit a home run just put a good swing and you might be surprised see i mean that's a silly way of saying this is really this is the principle that's getting worked out in these verses It's just this, those who are trying to accomplish good works fail to accomplish them. Those who aren't trying to accomplish good works succeed in accomplishing them. See, if you're trying to do good works to build a spiritual resume, in other words, if if religion is still the operating principle of your heart, and you're you're trying to do good works because you're scared to death, uh, you want the verdict to come, and it's still out there ahead of all of your obedience, if you're trying to do good works to build a spiritual resume, then you'll fail, and you'll stand condemned on the day of judgment. But if you've had an experience of grace, get ready, and you know that no good works can save you, and you're resting in Jesus' work for, for you, in other words, your heart's oriented to the gospel, then your life will be full of good works. You see, see, work for your salvation, and your good works won't count for anything, and you'll be sent away into eternal punishment. Receive the salvation that God offers you in Jesus and stop working and your life will be full of good works that will win you the reward of everlasting life. You see the difference? And according to this parable, the dividing line between genuine believers and false believers is not some of the things that we would normally think it to be. It's not church attendance or sexual purity or family values. 
It is compassion and generosity to the poor and the needy. Now, what is that? I mean, what's happening here? I mean, if you look at this parable, everybody in Jesus' day would have known what this was. Every morning, the shepherds would go out, uh, and they'd been camping all night long, and they would go to the pen where the sheep were being kept for the night, and they would divide the sheep among them. And so every shepherd could distinguish his sheep. They, you know, the shepherd knows the sheep that belongs to him, and they would go, and they would say, this one's mine. You know, and that's the picture Jesus is painting, that at the end of the world, when the judgment comes, Jesus will sit upon his throne, and he will separate those who belong to him from those who don't. And the distinguishing mark, the thing that he will be looking for more than anything else, the distinguishing factor that will tell who belong to him and who, and who don't, is a life of mercy and compassion toward the needy and a commitment to doing justice and caring for the poor. Now, why that issue, not some other? And I think the answer to that question, if I could put what I've already said another way, is just this. What Jesus will be looking for on the day of judgment is not good works, but a genuine experience of grace in the heart. Not external moral behaviors, but internal spiritual reality. Faith, but faith that is a faith that expresses itself or the word energizes itself towards love. And more than any other issue, the, the issue of doing justice and loving mercy reveals a heart that's been transformed by faith. And so this morning, we just want to take a look. That's a long introduction, I know, but it's going to be shorter from here on out. We want to take a look at this passage and see how these things work. Now, Tim Keller has written a book called Generous Justice. He's a pastor in our denomination, and pretty much all my thoughts originate with his thoughts, not necessarily on this passage, but in other places. And so I just need to put that out there at the beginning. And here's his thesis in in the book, and I just want to read it to you. He says, If a person has grasped the meaning of grace in his heart, he will do justice. If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he's grateful for God's grace, but in his heart he's far from him. If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals at best he doesn't understand the grace he's experienced, and at worst, he's not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Now let me summarize that, and then we're going to go. Okay, here's what Tim Keller's teaching, and I think what this passage is teaching in Matthew 25. If the general pattern and trajectory of your life as a follower of Jesus is not toward mercy and compassion to the poor and the needy, then at best you're a Christian, but the gospel's not really real to you yet. It's just a little seed in your life. Or at worst, you're not really a Christian. And on the day of judgment, you'll be sent away to eternal punishment. So the doctrine this morning is just this, that a true experience of grace in the gospel, produces a life of generosity and justice. But here's what we want to do. First, we want to ask, does the Bible teach that? <laughs> is that biblical? And then secondly, if it is, then why? And then just a couple of applications. And so those are the points on the back of your sermon outline. You'll see just two points and then a couple of applications. Does the Bible, uh, so a true experience of grace in the gospel will produce a life of generous justice. But does the Bible teach this? And if so, why does it teach this? And then a couple of applications, okay? So let's just walk through that together for just a few minutes, okay? Starting with this, what do we mean by living faith? Now, the fruit of genuine faith in Jesus is generosity and a commitment to justice. That's what this passage clearly teaches here in Matthew 25. Uh, Caring for the physical needs of people. Now, there are two more passages beyond this one that I want to just focus on for a minute because they're so clear in echoing what Jesus is teaching here in these verses. The first is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. And if you've read the Bible, if you've been around the church for a while, it's probably something you're familiar with. But there, James makes a statement that's really 
kind of hard. In fact, Martin Luther, who was kind of the architect of the Reformation and the doctrine of justification by faith alone, because of James's statement in James 2, verse 17, proposed that we throw the book of James out of the canon. Because <laughs> it seems so contrary uh, to so many other places in the Bible. But James says there in James two seventeen, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But then he offers an illustration. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so James teaches very clearly in those verses that the working of faith, faith without works is dead. So the works of faith, the working of faith that proves the living, you know, uh, being a living faith is Deeds of compassion and mercy and generosity, meeting physical needs, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and providing for the homeless and caring for the sick and visiting the elderly and all the things Jesus mentions here. That's a living faith, not a dead faith. The same thing in First John 3 in our assurance of pardon. <clears throat> you can turn back and see it there in verse 17. John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, the implication is, is you can't have God's love in you and then refuse to use your money and your material possessions to provide for those who don't have the basic necessities of life, especially if they're your brother or sister. I mean, to close your heart to a brother in need means to shut off your compassion. That's what the word means toward that person. And if you do that, if you do that, what John's saying is, is then you don't know anything about the love for God. It's not in you. You don't, I mean, you've not come into it. You've not experienced it. And so the summary of this teaching, and my voice is fading, by the way, if you can't tell. I've been, I'm surprised I have lungs because I've been hacking them up for two days. But the summary of this teaching is just this. That what matters in this world is what you get done, how much you accomplish. I mean, in the world of pastors, it's, you know, well, how big is your church? Or, you know, how big is your budget? Or how many people came to Christ in your ministry last year? I mean, these are the kinds of things that merit the approval and the blessing of other people almost exclusively. I mean, we are enamored as a culture with people who can can produce. Uh, One funny illustration, I remember a year or so ago, there was some sort of scandal in Tallahassee with the football players. I don't know. Who knows, right? I mean, it's the Seminoles. But when it broke, when it broke, I turned to a friend. We were in, in a place eating lunch, and I said, finally, we've got the quality of athlete that we did when we were winning those championships. You know? Right? I mean, I don't care what the guy's GPA is. Give me, give me a break. Who cares? I don't care if he's nice to his little sister. I mean, can he catch a football and run fast and hit hard and win me a championship? You know, but Jesus, so we're enamored uh, with people who produce. But Jesus is changing the paradigm. He says what matters in this, in this world may be what you produce, but what will matter on the day of judgment is how you treated the people you came in contact with along the way especially the poor and the needy. I mean, it's an absolute death blow to task-oriented people like me. <laughs> I mean, grace doesn't make you driven. Grace makes you kind and patient and com- full of compassion for people. Right? I mean, what matters in Christian circles typically is how committed you are, right? right? Your ch- church attendance and, you know, how faithful you are in, in religious things. And again, Jesus is changing the paradigm. He says the measure of your love and devotion to God is not how committed you are to church things. That you're here every Sunday, you know, that's probably a good practice. Or that you serve on a ministry team or as an officer, that those, those things are good too. But he says the measure of your love and your devotion to God is your love and care for his people, especially the poor and the needy. 
Grace doesn't primarily make you committed. The residue, in other words, of an experience of grace is not religious fervor. Grace makes you kind and gentle and humble and willing to serve. And this is what's being revealed here. Right? And over and over again in the Bible, you can see uh, the preference God has for the working out of the faith in Jesus Christ on a horizontal level. And so you have Isaiah 58 there in your call to worship, which is why I chose it. And here's a bunch of people who, for all practical purposes, are very, very interested in religious things. They fast and they gather for worship. And he even says they delight to know his ways. They're a nation that does righteousness and does not forsake God. They draw near to him and pray and are and are busy in religious ceremony and ritual and activity. And yet, the prophet offers them a rebuke that the fasting that God would desire is not the, the, you know, the fervor of religious activity and ceremony. It is just this, that they would be people who, because of the grace of God that has come into their life in the gospel, would then begin to work out the reality of the gospel on a horizontal level to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke and to share their bread with the hungry and to clothe the naked and again to do all of these things. And over and over and again, you see in the scriptures how God has to provide a correction for his people. So, for example, Micah 6.8, the prophet says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before God? Do I bring him a burnt offering? I mean, what do I do to appease and to, to you know, to, what is it that God really requires and wants for me to do? Will he be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Do I give my firstborn son even, he says, for my transgressions? I mean, what do I have to do? What is it that God desires of me? And then the answer comes, he's told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. So you see, everywhere, all of, not just here in Matthew 25, everywhere in the Bible, it's true. I mean, a true experience of grace in the gospel will produce a life of generosity and justice. It's, it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. But then, okay, secondly then, but why? So if that's true, if it's, if it's there biblically, then Why? Why, then, is a life of generosity and justice the true litmus test of genuine faith in Jesus? Well, I mean, what is the gospel? I mean, let's just think about what the, for the gospel for a minute. Why would it be that this would be the true test of having experience of grace in the gospel? Well, the gospel is just this. I'm guilty, and I'm condemned, and I'm <clears throat> rebellious, and my sin has overwhelmed me, and I'm powerless to do anything to save myself. And yet, Jesus looked upon me, and in grace he came to me, and he rescued me. Not because I'd done anything to deserve or indebt him to myself. I don't deserve his love. I'm spiritually bankrupt and he paid my debt. Not because I'm a good investment. But he is one who will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the poor in spirit are those who know their need. They know that their need's beyond them. They they can't provide for themselves. They can't pay their debt. That's what we learn in the gospel, see? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I was hungry and I was thirsty. I was naked with nothing to clothe my shame. I was a stranger, alienated from God in my sin. I was outside and spiritually sick and imprisoned under Satan's reign of evil. And Jesus looked on me in my need. And he came into the world to save me. And watch what happens. 
And for 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry in the wilderness as he battled Satan on, in, in, on my behalf. And on the cross he cried out, I thirst, and he was thirsty. He hungered and he thirsted so that I might have spiritual nourishment. He was stripped naked and hung there in shame. And he was made naked that I might be clothed in his righteousness. He became like a stranger to the Father, cast out by taking upon himself my sin. He suffered and died and was in prison in hell so that I could be set free. Do you see, that's, that's the mystery of the gospel. I mean, I do nothing, he does everything. I have no food and drink, and he's nourished me. I have no clothes, and he clothes me. I have no home, and he welcomes me into his family. And to recognize that I do nothing, and he does everything. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what I mean by an experience of grace. Grace, the recognition of the grace of God coming to me in Jesus. And grace comes to the weak and not the strong and to the sick and not the healthy and to sinners, not the righteous. But the problem is, and the reason this is so foreign to us is the problem is that we are not poor in spirit. We are uh, middle class in spirit. In other words, we don't believe that we're all that bad. We're basically good people, right? I mean, we screw up every now and then, of course, but for the most part, we follow the rules. We do the right thing. I mean, you know, really, Grace, I, I don't really, I don't really, I'm okay. I got it covered. And what I think Jesus would teach us and what Tim Keller really kind of meditates on in his book is that if you're middle class in spirit, then you still think you have something in you to commend yourself to God. You think of yourself, you know, as a pretty good person. If that's how you view yourself, it'll be all too easy for you to look down on the poor and the needy and be indifferent or even judgmental towards them. But if you're poor in spirit, in other words, if you know that you can't pay the bills that are due because of your sin, but Jesus paid them, I mean, if you know that you're poor and weak and helpless and needy and Jesus has rescued you, then that will work itself out in a love for and a caring for those who are poor and needy and helpless. So, Tim Keller, this is the only quote I'm going to give you. He says this. This is very powerful. He says, to the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you will identify with those in need. You will see their tattered clothes And think, all of my righteousness is a filthy rag. But in Christ, we can be clothed in his robes of righteousness. When you come upon those who are economically poor, you cannot say to them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus intervened for you. And you cannot say, I won't help you because you got yourself into this mess. Since God came to the earth and moved into your spiritual neighborhood, as it were, and helped you even though your spiritual problems were your own fault. In In other words, he says, when Christians who understand the gospel, see a poor person, they recognize they're looking into a mirror. And what the scripture would teach us, from cover to cover, all over, is that believing the gospel, the true test of believing the gospel, is the willingness and the movement of your life leading you to become the gospel. And so 2 Corinthians 8, 9 Paul, the apostle, says to the church in Corinth, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might be made rich. That's the gospel. The gospel is just this. I was poor. Jesus was rich. And yet Jesus took all of his riches and he gave them to me. He made himself poor in order to make me rich. And the way you know you've had a genuine experience of grace 
is that the gospel begins to get replayed in your life over and over and over again. So you become the kind of person who willingly, freely, joyfully takes your riches and gives them to somebody else and willingly makes yourself poor in order to make someone else rich. You become the gospel. And that's how you know you believe it. And that's what this parable is teaching. That on the day of judgment, that is what Jesus will be looking for. How you did that, how you became the gospel with your time and your money and your material possessions, it is the distinguishing mark of all who belong to him. Now, I've got to be honest, and I've got to pastor us well, I think, in this, but this presents a huge challenge for us. Uh, Because look around. I mean, for us to be a true congregation of Jesus' followers, then we would need to be much more than just a bunch of young, middle-class white people. We need, in other words, for us to be able to even work this stuff out, we need somehow to pray that God would begin to work to bring into our number and that we would pursue and embrace the elderly and widows and single moms and the working poor all the way down to the Hispanic migrant farm workers and the homeless and the ex-cons. And so you can see those points of application there on the sermon outline. And I'm just going to get to the first one this morning. I'm sorry for putting that there, but I can't get any further than this. And we're going to spend, by the way, the whole month of June talking about this particular subject matter. And so I don't have to say everything this morning. But the first point of application in even trying to, how do I even begin to be a person who hears Jesus' words here in Matthew 25 and begins to try to live them out and put them in the practice. And the first point of application is, and the first point of difficulty, the obstacle that we've got to overcome, is that our lives have to begin to intersect with the poor and the needy. And that's harder than it might seem, because for most of us, the only poor people we see are the people at intersections holding the signs up. And to think, how do I apply this to that, is really missing. I mean, Jesus envisioned something entirely different. I mean, I think just something entirely different. And so I want to... Just by way of opening up that application there of intersection, how do we begin to be a p- people whose lives begin to intersect with the hungry and the thirsty and the broken and the needy and the poor? And I think there are five spiritual disciplines that Jesus gives us here. And I'm just, I mean, literally 30 seconds on each of them, okay? So don't panic. You thought, gosh, I thought we were almost done. And he just said five things. So five spiritual disciplines that I think this parable would cultivate in us as a church. Cultural values that we would be praying for that God would do for us. And the first is just this, spiritual discipline number one, that we would begin to see. You see the wicked on Jesus' left? They say, when did we see you? I mean, when did, we, when did we see you? And that's the problem. They didn't see. Well, we have to see the poor and the needy. And if you've been part of a person of Jesus study around here, you know what that means. You know it means you've got to slow down and you've got to take time for conversation and you've got to ask questions. I remember when I was a... <laughs> I think probably in second or third grade, I grew up on Lake Eloise in southeast Winter Haven. And I went to Garden Grove Elementary School. And my mom was an assistant principal there. And um, I don't know, I don't remember the circumstances that surrounded the event. But my mother got so uh, exasperated with me and frustrated with me. I guess probably I was acting like a little spoiled brat. She put me on the bus uh, that, that went and took all the, the, the African-American kids that were being bused in from Waverly. If you know where the Waverly community is over to the, to the east on the other side of kind of 27 and so she made me she said you're going to sit on this bus right behind the bus driver because you know the bus would go and then it would come back and pick up a second group of people so she put me on the bus and it took me around and came back to school and she said i want you to go you need to understand that not everybody lives the way you do i want you to go and see the houses that these other kids live in 
in the neighborhood that they're in. And I, and I remember I sat in the back of the, and I was scared to death. Um, but, I, I'm, but obviously, something, I mean, you know, but I saw. I saw where these kids I went to school with, where they lived. I mean, I think that's, that's part of what Jesus, you know, what's being told to us here, that we have to figure out how to walk the streets of the poor neighborhoods in Winter Haven and get to know people's names and their stories and understand the causes of poverty so we can help. Now, one way to get involved, come walk with us downtown when we do corporate prayer down there. And when the guys come up and ask you for money, don't just pull out your wallet and give them five bucks. Sit down and talk to them and get to know their names. I mean, we've got to be a people who begin to see. Second spiritual discipline, okay? Second spiritual discipline is, is we've got to be a people who begin to move towards. If our lives are really going to intersect with the poor and the needy in our city in an effort to make them a part of our community, then we're going to have to move towards them. We're going to have to go where they are. Jesus says this, verse 36, I was in prison and you came to me. By the way, a prisoner can't come to you. You have to go to them. Right? You with me? So Jesus says, you came to me. You came to where I was. You entered into my life. And we have to find ways for our lives to begin to intersect with the poor in ways that go beyond the occasional interaction. We've got to go and live alongside of them. We have to be among them. We have to go. I mean, I mean this. I mean, call me crazy, call me youthful, you know, and, and naive and whatever. But we, if we're going to really change the city of Winter Haven and make the kingdom of God in the invisible kingdom visible, and if we're going to make the city of Winter Haven a great city, at some point, some of us are going to have to move our lives into the poor neighbors, neighborhoods of our city and live there. It's what a group of our friends at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Lakeland have done in their neighborhood, right there by the church, Parker Street Ministries. Ten years ago, a, little, a boy from Arkansas moved into the, the black neighborhood in downtown Lakeland. And since then, about five or six other families have joined them in that work. And in about two years, we're going to plant a church. And it's going to be awesome. But they've lived there. And they've gotten to know the people. And they've walked the streets and they've gotten to know their neighbors. And they've, you know, so this this is the model. We, you know, Jesus is calling us to go, to move toward. We can't wait for them to come to us. We must move toward. And this too is modeled in the gospel, isn't it? Jesus came. He left heaven and moved into our neighborhood. He came and entered into our lives. He didn't stand at a distance. He, he came near. He came. And so we've got to do this too. I just thought about ways for you to get involved. One of the ways you may not even know uh, that we have a group who goes to the jail every Wednesday. You've got to come and go with them. Of course, you've got to go through like 9,000 hoops to even be able to get in the door, right, Jonathan? Or dad or somebody, you know. But we have to go. And we're trying to do that. So come and do it with us. Now, third, spiritual discipline. It's just the discipline of hospitality. The third cultural value is just one of hospitality, that not only should we be out among the poor and the needy in our city, but they should be among us. And in order to see that happen, we're going to have to develop the skill and discipline of hospitality. Jesus says, verse 35, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And that word is the word sunago, which means to assemble or to gather. It's the word from which we get the word synagogue. So it's, it's a coming together. And so the question just becomes, how will we treat people who are different than we are? Who smell bad, who have different color skin than we do, or who hold different theological positions than we do, or political views than we do, or speak a different language than we do? I mean, that's the issue. I was a stranger, Jesus said. I was an alien. I was a foreigner. 
and you, you brought me in. I mean, will we make people who are different than us feel welcome or will we keep them at arm's length? We have to embrace the poor and the needy and make them feel wanted, make them feel like the favorite uncle in the family, not the black sheep. Uh, we have a, a group of people called the Assimilation Team, and you can help them. It's one, I mean, just one kind of arm of our church that's trying to help figure out how do we how do we do that well. And so if you just, that, that resonates with you, you need to talk to Tammy Henderson or Jamie Winfrey or that team about how we can get better at that work. Fourth spiritual discipline is the spiritual discipline of deaconing. Now, we need to, we need to deacon. We have to ha- we want a culture of deaconing. And the word is there in the passage when the wicked ask, Lord, verse 45, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And that word minister is the verbal form of the word deacon. When did we not deacon you, they say? And it means to serve and to meet physical needs. And if we're going to be a church that really tries to allow our lives, then we're to intersect the lives of the poor and the needy in our city, to bring them into our community and to live together under the reign of Christ and his kingdom, then we are going to have to figure out how to be a people who specifically have a strategy of meeting the physical needs of those who go without in our city, of giving bread to the hungry and passing out sleeping bags in the winter to people sleeping on the streets to keep them warm, to meet physical, practical needs. Pray. Uh, In six months, we hope to have deacons who will lead us in that work. But think, how can we get involved with the mission, with other people in our city who are doing who are doing this work of bringing physical, practical needs to the people who have needs in our city? And then the fifth spiritual discipline uh, that I think we're called to here, as we think about what inter- our lives intersecting with the lives of the poor and needy, so that we can even begin to <laughs> live out the reality of this passage, is just this: this spiritual discipline of spiritual oversight. So not only meeting physical needs, but also meeting spiritual needs. Jesus says, I was sick, verse 36, and you visited me. And that word visited is episkopos, which is episcopal, which literally means to, to oversee. It is the word the Bible uses to describe the office of elder. He's an overseer, the Bible says. He's in charge of keeping watch of those under his care. He's to check in on them, to make sure they have what they need to be successful in their work in the kingdom of heaven. And what we are to be, Jesus is saying, a culture of overseers who are living in close enough proximity to one another that we're aware of one another's needs and heartaches and discouragements, discouragements, excuse me, and then commit, as we said a minute ago, to the long haul with one another. You see, these are just a few. And I'm just going to stop. I mean, it's going to be rather abrupt, actually. Pray, pray for our elders who should be online in about three or four months, that they would lead us in this work of overseeing the spiritual lives of people. Come and be a part of a community group in our church because this is where this really gets worked out and how we try to enmesh our lives with one another so that we can be overseers in, in, you know, in one another's lives of, of really helping one another spiritually toward the goal that we have of living faithfully into Jesus' kingdom. But see, you see, the distinguishing mark, Jesus says, is an experience of grace in the gospel that produces a life of generosity and justice. And the first, the first, <laughs> the first obstacle is intersection. And so there are just a couple of things that I kind of see in this passage and some things that we've got to ask Jesus to do in us. And so why don't we just do that? Why don't we pray? 
uh, in you, where you are, pray prayers of repentance as, as, um, as might be, you know, good and helpful. Um, but let's just pray and ask that, that the Lord Jesus would come and begin to do this work in us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. And, um, and as terrifying as it might feel to us, we would be foolish and naive to not admit the fact that very clearly the scripture teaches that we will come before you one day and you will sit upon your throne and you will uh, bring judgment. And it will not be all of the things that we uh, often give our, our emotional capital and resources and time and energy to. Uh, but the one thing you're looking for is that our hearts would have been changed by the truth of the gospel and overflowing in deeds of compassion and mercy and love towards the broken and the sinful and the poor and the needy in our city. So, Lord Jesus, would you come by the Spirit and continue to work the gospel into our hearts to produce a living faith, a real, genuine faith, a rejoicing in the work that you've done on our behalf that proves itself in lives of mercy and mission towards those who need um, bread and clothing and a home. Would you do this work in us that we might in turn make the city of Winter Haven great, that you might gain glory through the fruit that we bear in your name. And we pray these things for your sake. Amen. One day we will look upon his face and there will be no more sadness or pain or tears because even death itself will be uh, vanquished. Uh, But until that day, we have work to do to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people in our city who desperately need to hear and to do it through the proclamation of the gospel but also the demonstration of the gospel through acts of mercy and compassion. But the good news is, is that as he sends us out to do this, even as we are bound for the promised land, he promises that we don't have to wait for that day to have the Father look upon us and to look upon him. But that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, then the Father's gaze is upon your life. And that's exactly what this benediction promises when I say, may the Lord turn his face towards you, right? And so as you go, and as I go, uh, with great longing and also great need for greater faith and repentance. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then go knowing that the Father, uh, you, you work and live beneath the Father's smile. And so receive the promise of the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.